to episode four of Texing, uh, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. Say hi, Jason. Hey, guys. And uh, today our guest is Pelsey. Pelsey. <laughs> nice. Today nice. our guest is uh, sorry. I'm sorry about that, Feldy. Today our guest is Peldy from Balsamique. Yeah, as you hi can there. see, we run a real professional show here. Yeah, very professional. Hi, hi, Feldy. How are you getting on? Uh, good. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no probs. Um, if you want to comment on anything we're talking about, go to uh, trim forward slash texing4. That's tr.im forward slash texing4. And that'll get you directly into this episode's show notes and uh, comment system. So, Peldi, it's it's really brilliant to have you on the show. You're you're sort of living you're living the developer's dream. You know, you've you've moved from a, a corporate job and a corporate position to starting your own company to bringing over two hundred thousand dollars a year. You know, it's it's an amazing story. How how the hell did you do it? First of all, the fact that this is the developer dream is a little bit of a surprise to me. I, I did not start out. Um, you know, I, I was perfectly happy, uh, at Micromedia climbing a ladder, you know, in a big corporate, um, job. I, I really, uh, I, I don't really have anything bad to say about working for a large software, uh, company. Uh, hmm. it's a really cool job. I don't, um, you get to program all the time and you get a paycheck every two weeks and you don't have to deal with, uh, you know uh any sort of a uh, risk uh i guess you know startups are a different thing but for a big company you're you're it's a very sheltered environment you're allowed to fail over and over and you're surrounded by people that know more about about software development than you do and you can just learn from them and it's free but doesn't you that know, create in fact you're getting paid <laughs> but but doesn't that create a certain kind of inertia and i mean for any any large corporates that i've worked for i've always felt like they're just this huge big lumbering beast that moves along at about half a mile an hour and it's really difficult to make any interesting and impactful change well i didn't i did not feel that um when working when i started at micromedia uh i could definitely see that my uh my contributions uh, made a change from the beginning. Uh, and um, when we switched to Adobe, I was terrified because it was like, oh my gosh, now we're five times bigger and uh, we're going to be 10 times slower. Um, there was definitely that fear, but um, I have to hand it to uh, the, the, the executives at Adobe because they really, it's not easy. It's definitely not easy to... Uh, to go fast when you're that size, it's just it's just really hard to do uh, mechanically. It's not that people don't want to. Yeah, believe me, every executive wants to go as fast as the the, the smallest startup, um, but it's just very hard to do. Um, just because you have a lot of customers, you know, you can't change things on them. But anyways, but um, Adobe, I think, is is changing dramatically in the last couple of years, and for a company that size to uh, to really uh, embrace. Um, Air and you know new new way you know software as a service etc. Uh, at every level like that, I think that's uh, very commendable. So you, know, you, you have to do it or you're going to die. But uh, if you were happy, uh, I mean, if you were happy in Adobe and you know really happy climbing the ladder, then what what made you decide to sort of branch out and start Balsamic? So um, I was very happy for all my career there. Uh, for you know six years, I had six different bosses every year. I would you know I'd get a promotion etc. And I would. I, you know, I started in uh, quality assurance testing and I learned how to do that. And then I did years of development and then I started to lead people. And uh, by, by the end, I was sort of a, 
uh, I was engineer lead, which is sort of like a manager, but without direct reports, which is an awesome job <laughs> because, you know, you don't have a budget or you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. And if, you know, if you need to have a, a, a tough talk with somebody, you can just have your boss do it. Um, but uh, anyways, so it was all good, but uh, for a number of things happened at all at the same time that made me decide that um, that it, the time was right to to make the jump. Um, a few of them were personal. Um, I have a two year, I have a three year old who was two at the time, and uh, my family was all in Italy. I was living in San Francisco, and so they were missing out on his formative years, and we were missing out on the free childcare. And so uh, I wanted uh, him to spend more time with my larger family here in Italy. Um, okay. And so we thought, you know, maybe we could do a year or two in Italy. And, uh, you know, at the beginning, we thought maybe, we, you, know, you know, I can keep working for Adobe from there or something like that. But then um, a few things happened. Uh, you know, at Adobe, I started teaching more than I was learning. And for me, that's always an uncomfortable place to be. Okay. Um, I really want, you know... Uh, I really want to learn forever if I can. And, um, you know, the fact that, that uh, being a programmer in a large company is, is great because it's sheltered. It's also a double-edged word, a sword, because I wanted to, I, I was completely fascinated with how to price a product, how to market it, how to sell it, how to support it. That's something I totally want to bring up at a later stage is, you know, how, di how did you deal with the price point of Balsamic? Because it's a very interesting okay. science. But anyway, yeah. Um, so I, 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 I wanted to see what it took to do it all, not just the coding. The coding part I was, uh, you know, I, I'm comfortable with and, um, by now, um, but I wanted to see all the rest. And then I had this idea for mock-ups, um, which came about, you know, from a problem I had, uh, you know, uh, we uh, we designed uh, a lot of software, Adobe clearly, and so yeah. we needed a, that it was fast, as fast and uh, easy to use as the whiteboard, but um, you know, digital, so that you could collaborate on on the mockups uh, easier. So I had that idea, and then uh, our landlord decided to sell our house, so they kicked us out, and then my mother moved out of her old place in Italy, and so we had this free place to stay in Italy. So. All this happened within two months, and so we said, "Listen, if we're going to move, let's just move." So we moved. Through. So it was a lot of uh, serendipitous uh, things happening sort of at the same time. Or never, you know. With the two-year-old, we thought, "Let's go to Italy for two years and try it out. If we come back, he's going to be four. He's not going to be in school yet. So you know, better now than later." The, the more it was the right kind of the right time in our at our age, I guess. You know, that all makes sense, but it's just so funny because it flies against in the face of uh, conventional wisdom, which is like if you're going to do a startup, you really need to be in the Bay Area. So you said, hey, it's time to do a startup. I'm out of here. I'm going to go to the other side <laughs> of the world. That was a risk. That was know? definitely a risk that um, – that, uh, it is a risk that I'm taking by not basing in the Bay Area. Um, it's a lot cheaper to live in Italy for me than to live in the Bay Area. I could not afford to do a startup while paying $3,000 a month of rent sure. for a small apartment. Uh, yeah. You know, and so that was really the only way I could think of doing a startup is moving to Italy because I didn't have to pay rent. Well, how, yeah. what's what's the um, you know, so you had a free place to stay, but what are the other um, uh, cost of living uh, in comparisons? I mean, is it is it relatively comparable in other aspects aside from the fact that you had a free place to stay, or is it wine's, actually wine's cheaper in Italy? I can tell you that. 
Wine is cheaper, definitely. The food is cheaper. Not meat, but food is cheaper. I don't know. In general, I think that um, when we were in San Francisco, there's so many wonderful restaurants. We were eating out all the time. Oh, and now yeah. we don't eat out as much. And then, um, you know, if I wanted to go on a date with my wife, I would have to get a nanny, which was about $20 an hour. So it was like a $500 night uh, between <laughs> <Right>. everything. <'Cause, laughs> right. You know, now I can just drop the kid off at my mom's and go out for a pizza. <laughs> you know, like, yeah, that's that's a, that's general, a really she, nice thing to have for sure. I have three kids myself, so and we don't have any uh, family neighborhoods. So I, I know how difficult and expensive that is. You just, you know, if you're going to do it. It's going to cost a fortune to go out to dinner and a movie. Yeah, yeah. So in general, you know, coffee is not five dollars for a double latte. So when when I first saw Adobe Air, it didn't occur to me that <clears throat> um, small uh, developers would be able to create a product, a sta- like a product using Adobe Air, that they'd then be able to sell for a decent chunk of change, like uh, seventy nine dollars. So Why not? I, I don't know. It just it, it's for some reason it just didn't occur to me. But now sort of seeing what you've done and the business that you've created, it sort of opens up my eyes and makes me think that there is an incredible amount of opportunity for software developers. You know, let's just say it's, there's way more opportunity than I realized from just from looking at what you've done. Yeah, well, you know, I got, I, I saw this Twitter today, somebody saying, I can't believe I'm buying Balsamic $80 for an air application, but I'm still buying it. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, but... I don't understand this. Air is a technology. Why? How is the technology related to the price? Because, uh, because I'll tell you why. Because it feels, as a developer, it feels like I could make an air app. I could do that. You know, it's sort of, you know, I'm a web developer. I could do that. It's easy. So why should I pay eighty dollars? I think, I, I, and I know that it's not easy, but I think that's what that's what your first gut reaction is as a developer. But well, I, I think the other the other thing is, yeah, you always have that problem with selling tools to developers that they build them themselves. But that's just for really simple tools. So if you're going to use something that actually really works and is complete and and uh, really does its job, that's going to take a lot of work. And I think most developers, after spending a little time trying to build their own, they're like, ah, this is just a waste of my time. I should buy something that's already done rather than wasting weeks or months of my life trying to build my own. And yeah. the other side of it is, you know, the reason I think you you may have this perception, uh, Justin, and a lot of people have the perception that they don't want to pay for things online or things that are sort of web 2.0 is that so many of the offerings over the past few years were just given away for free because everybody was in this sort of, you know, race to get something out and just do advertising, but that doesn't work. And eventually everybody realizes that someone's got to make some money somewhere. Someone's got to charge. And I think that's just reality. And if you have a, of a, of a quality product that solves a problem, you can charge for it. And I think that's exactly what Peldy's demonstrated here. Well, yeah, I mean, just to answer that on a personal level, I personally don't have a problem paying for software. In fact, I love paying for software because it makes me think that, one, you know, I'm, it's like good karma. <laughs> and right. I think that if I'm paying for other people's software, one day I'm going to be able to make some software that people are going to pay for. <laughs> well, it's not just karma. I am, uh, for instance, I am uh, terrified that uh, I'm not paying Pivotal Tracker anything. Because I want them to stay in business. If they go out of business, I'm screwed. I rely on Pivotal Tracker for all the to-do and all our development milestones and everything. But I, it's free, and uh, I'm not very happy with that. Huh. I'd, rather, I'd rather give them some money so that they stay in business. Yeah, but, why, but, but the, then the point comes up is, you know, why, how would you know to try them out in the first place unless they had so, some sort of free offering? So I guess freemium is, what, is, is the model that's really getting out there at the moment for that kind of thing. Well, you know, they could have they could have uh, um, a demo, a sandbox thing. They could have uh, a video. I don't, I don't feel that um, given in a freemium. I'm not comfortable with freemium because 
um, you want to make the free version appealing enough to get adoption uh, so, so that it's good enough so that people use it, but not good enough because you want to charge for them. So is it good enough or is it not good enough? You know, if it's not good enough, people are not going to use it, even if it's free. Um, I mean, that's, I think it's a psychological, it's sort of a psychological, uh, you know, thing that happens in your head. As soon as you see that something's free, you just assume it's not worth much. And yeah. there's been a lot of studies absolutely. that show that, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the, I think the 37 signals guys say that, you know, for, with the demos, you just want to give them a taste, uh, not really something useful, but a taste. Uh, and, uh, and I agree with that. You want or, you know, the other thing that, that what I like to do is give the demo for free that is useful enough, but not very convenient. Like, for instance, you can use mockups on my website, but you just get, an, you, you get this uh, dialogue every five minutes that says, hey, thank you. Would you like to buy? You can dismiss it and continue working. Um, right. And, uh, you know, you can't save, uh, save to disk, but you can if you use export import and save, you know, copy paste manually into a text file. So, you know, it's fully functional if you think about it, but it's kind of annoying to use. So and that so, is so that is freemium then, isn't it? I, yeah, but I don't sell it as, hey, look, it's a free version. It's a clearly okay, a demo. Okay, so you just call it, the, this is the demo version. And, it's um, a clearly a demo version, but, you know, for people who can't afford $79, I'm happy that they use the demo version. I have 1,500 people using the demo version every day. Yeah, I, th I think that makes sense. I mean, I, I, I think, you, yeah, you, however you want to do it, whether you want to have a, a, like a 30- or 60-day trial or you have sort of crippleware or you have annoying uh, dialogue boxes or you have something, a sandbox or whatever it is, but you just don't want to give the perception away that what you're creating isn't worth anything, but you want to give people the opportunity to experiment to at least get a sense of it. And yeah. I think, you know, there's probably about 10 different ways to do it. And, you know, Peldy's clearly, you know, chosen a path that works for him. And I think, yeah, I think as us, as developers, as entrepreneurs, it's like we need to get this mindset that, look, we are creating value. And when we spend, you know, months or years building software and working on these things that, you know, that there's no problem to for charging a, a, a price tag for it, especially if it gives the user the sense that, hey, this, this, this company's going to be around. I can, I can spend this money because they're going to be here in a year or two years from now. Well, once again, I mean, for talking about, you know, creating value, I mean, I'm used to thinking of shareware or software that I download off the internet that isn't made by Microsoft, I'm used to thinking of that in the $20 price range. And I was surprised um, at, at the Balsamix $80 price range. But I, it wasn't surprised in a way that it made me think, I'm not going to buy that. It's just, it was a new price point that I hadn't seen for that type of software. And, you know, I'm, I use Balsamix, <laughs> I use it about five hours a day, so i am certainly got my money's worth. But I just wondered, you know, what, how did you get to that price point? Huh. Well, um, I could tell you the real story or the fake story. <laughs> well, <laughs> let's go for both. I'd like to hear both. Yeah, let's, let's hear the fake story first and then the real story. <laughs> well, the fake story is clear. I mean, if you do all the analysis, uh, uh, no, I'm just kidding. So um, the, the little analysis that you can do is this, is how much time is um, this going to save people, Yeah. right? And uh, my rule of thumb is that other people's time is worth $100 an hour. And I, I, I use that, uh, that rule whenever I do support or anything like that. You know, if I wasted you an hour of your time, you know, in the perfect world, I would owe you 100 bucks. Yeah. Uh, you know, that helps me think about when to offer a refund, et cetera. But anyways, um, 
So say my tool saves you 10 minutes every hour, you know, that pays for itself in a day. So $79 is a good number. Hmm. Um, another thing that I knew was that I wanted it to be under $100, $120, because that's, I think, what's considered a low-cost software. You know, I think that for software, there's a few tiers. There's free, there's low-cost, there's, you know, prosumer, the, the, the $500 range uh, of Photoshop and all those other tools. And then there is the sort of departmental $5,000 range, and then there's enterprise. If you have to ask the price, you can't afford it type of deal. Hmm. Um, so I, know, I knew I wanted it to be low cost. Um, and $79 seemed like, a, like a, you know, a, good, a good number. Now, if you want the real story, yeah. <laughs> uh, somebody sent me an email while I was in beta and said, listen, there's this other product that is $79, and I think yours is better. And I said, okay, 79 it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think, that, I, I think if you, if you uh, got the inside scoop on most software pricing, you'd probably get a similar story. I mean, I was just talking to a fellow uh, entrepreneur the other day, and they have a successful startup, and that was the same thing. They just kind of took a look and saw what other people are doing, and then just took a pot shot and said, all right, well, we'll be somewhere. We don't want to be the lowest. We don't want to be the highest. And we'll just take somewhere in the middle, and uh, they've never changed it since, and they've done well. But what's interesting is, by by fluke, the price point that you've set just just through that email, like it it seems so correct for your business because the revenue that you've generated sounds like very sensible revenue. I mean, if you if you'd put that out there at nineteen ninety nine, for example, your your mm -hmm. your revenue just wouldn't be covering your costs. Yeah. You know, so it's it's worked well. Yeah, I'm I mean, very happy with the seventy nine. I get. Um, more people saying that it's a steal than people saying it's too expensive. So I know it's a good price. Um, I, I was lucky. I mean, I was I was ready to change the price if it didn't work. Uh, clearly, uh, but I mean, the thing is, you know, people people are buying it and they're paying for it. And as you say, you, there's a free demo where they can completely see what they're getting before they buy it. So, you know, what more could you want? So I'd like to ask a little bit about how you got this thing kickstarted. So you moved to. Um... You moved to uh, Italy, and you start mm -hmm. working. I think you said. Uh, I think I read one of your um, blog posts. You spent a few months writing it full time. Is that right? After you'd already spent weekends and nights working on it back in uh, San Francisco, is that is that sort of? Uh, no, uh, it was ready by the time I quit. I timed it right. Oh, okay, okay. Mm. So you 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 moved to Italy, and you say, okay, now I'm going to start selling this thing, right? Yep. You say, okay, I, I got I got a an initial version of the product. Okay, so what happens? I mean, you just say, okay, I'm done. How do you, who do you tell? I mean, how, how did you start marketing? Who, how did you bring some awareness to it? Uh, so I have, a, I have a couple of blog posts uh, about this on uh, balsamic.com slash blog. You look at the marketing uh, um, category. But um, basically, I did my homework. I looked, uh, I looked around for, uh, I Googled uh, how to launch a software <laughs> in, the, <laughs> you know, in the web 2.0 world. Um, I found some... Um, Great uh, resources, uh, mostly from Marshall Kirkpatrick of Rewrite Web, about um, you know how to launch a startup uh, in the era of blogging. And uh, there were other people saying you know how to submit your idea to Mashable or whatever. And and I just took all that advice and put it all together in uh, a few things that uh, I did. Uh, I emailed bloggers directly. I what else did I do? I um, uh, preparing for launch. That's really mostly what I did. Uh, did 
did those um, articles make you decide to take the whole approach that you've taken whereby you're being very transparent about what you're doing, about your company, about how much you're earning, and just, just I guess, the real so, transparency? So the transparency, I can't really uh, nail down. I haven't nailed down where I got that um, the, the the whole idea of being hyper-transparent uh, from. I think a little bit might be from, um, from 37 Signals, Getting Real. I think that they speak about that uh, somewhere. Uh, Guy Kawasaki's books have been a big uh, influence on me as well. And then uh, Atlassian, um, the, the the makers of Confluence and, and Jira, et cetera, which I plug in into with, um, their values are, you know, open company, no bullshit. That's their first value. <laughs> and then uh, I forget the second one, but their third one is their most, most famous one is don't fuck the customer. Which I think <laughs> is really <laughs> I got We gotta put the link to their value page on the show note because it's it's awesome. That's so great. Um, the, I think the idea of transparency came from the realization that uh, these days you can't really hide anything on the internet. I mean, it's really easy to figure out who's behind any website, or you know, so uh, or anything in general. Like I think that um, since it's so hard to hide anything, why even try? Uh, it's really liberating. You can just be yourself and uh, be honest uh, with the world. And uh, somehow it's more acceptable now to have a small company and be very ambitious than, than it was before. I wonder how practical it is once the company has, say, for example, 20 employees, and then you've got full transparency and everyone knows what everyone else earns and everyone knows what the, what the bonus structure is for everyone else. I mean, it sounds I like that would descend into anarchy. No, I don't agree. Uh, Joel Spolsky has a uh, clear posted rules on uh, how everybody's, how much everybody's paid and how bonuses works, et cetera. Uh, you know, I haven't uh, started thinking about that myself. I, I'm only now starting thinking about that since I have two employees. Uh, but um, will you be transparent but, with how about how much oh, you what you earn? Absolutely, yeah. everybody knows how much we sell every day. In fact, we share our. Uh, uh, financial data on a Dropbox folder that we all have access to. Hmm. Absolutely. Now, you know, one 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 thing that I was interested in finding out is, you know, when you you, you emailed bloggers and you you know you convinced them to to say, hey, you know, I got a cool product that's worth writing about, and you didn't bother with some sort of like you know professional PR campaign or PR release yeah. or anything like that. You did made it completely informal. And yeah, direct. well, I. Yeah, completely direct, pretty informal. Uh, I don't know. Press releases sound so 90s to me or 80s. Uh, I don't think they, they matter much these yes, days. Yes, someone convinced um, me to do that my, when I launched Prezo, and it was just stupid. I, I, I thought it was a really bad idea because I just thought it was, it was just kind of pointless. And mm-hmm. uh, someone said, oh, no, you really, you got to do your press release. And I had like four or five people telling me that. And so I spent like a day perfecting some press release, and it was just it's just a stupid waste of time. And because yeah, you email to a bunch of bloggers and they're just like, whatever, you know, and if I had just emailed a few of them individually and said, hey, listen, you know, I got this, um, I got this site I'd like you to check out, I thought they'd be much more likely to just give it a look and then it gets an annoying press release. Yeah. It's just so personal. I have to say that I, uh, you know, on the, on the launch day, I stayed up all day, 24 hours to try to see if somebody would have, uh, you know, because I asked everybody, please don't do it until June 19th, et cetera, et cetera. But, it was uh, it, I was I was really uh, bummed because only uh, one or two people had uh, had posted something. 
But in <laughs> retrospect, that I think that was a huge success. Um, I mean, would you write about somebody who's ju- who's completely unproven and just starting up, and is just some random guy that wrote you? You wouldn't exactly. No, right? <laughs> exactly. No, you've you've got to, you've got to see some proof in there. Well, the uh, the uh, the 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 advice that Marshall Kirkpatrick says is, if you want us to write about you, just give us a an OPML uh, file with your feeds on it, and we will watch it. And if it's something interesting, we'll write about it. So, in other words, uh, you know, be interesting, and uh, if you're worth it, we'll write about it. We'll make the decision. Don't pitch to us. Just be yourself and do something interesting. So basically, it goes back to, you know, Steve Martin says, be so good they can't ignore you. Right. <laughs> and uh, right. I love that. I love that. If your product is incredibly good, they're going to hear about it. Don't worry about marketing. Focus on the product. Focus on making your customers happy. Uh, and, you know, create a product that is, uh, has some character and solves a real need. And, you know, you're going to do well. It does, the Last week, you guys said that you know I spend all my time on the marketing. I actually don't do very much marketing at all. Uh, I spend all my time on making the product solid and hmm. and uh, making it better. Um, you know, the, See, the rest follows. So you don't do any you do you, you don't do any Google AdWords or any advertising like that. So I got sucked in. I got tricked into Google AdWords. They gave me fifty bucks for free, <laughs> and I was like, oh, whatever. I'll try it out. And so I set it up. And then they said, well, you know, with 50 bucks, uh, you know, you don't get very many impressions. How about you raise it up? So I raised it up. So now I, uh, I, I spend $200 of a month on Google AdWords and never, ever look at it. I have no idea if it's working or not. Um, <laughs> I think it's working because uh, I saw jumping sales, but I also added, you know, fixed some real bugs and added some good features. At the Why don't same you just time. try turning it off and see if you see a drop in sales? Eh, well, you know, I'm sure it doesn't hurt and 200 bucks is not that much. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, but, uh, this is how to run a business. <laughs> I, love, I, I love that people just uh, live in, you know, to uh, spend all this time optimizing the keywords. Eh, you know. Eh, whatever. Not, whatever. I like, I like Peldi's approach, you know, because he's, 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 he's really coming at it from a, a product guy, right? I mean, he writes he wants to write cool software yeah. and uh and that's really what he does and he says like i'm just gonna focus on that and yeah, I'll you let can't it. put lipstick on a on a but it's, bad piece of software i mean jason no that's what we've I... been saying about this podcast we've been saying you know we shouldn't get too stressed about trying to market it or whatever i mean just just make the bloody podcast good yeah <laughs> and then hopefully it'll set itself i agree i agree absolutely and also yeah. commit to it make sure you're committed to it make sure people understand that you're committed to it yeah. because if I'm going to invest some time getting to know you guys by listening to you, I want to make sure you're in it for a long time. Well, right. we are. That makes a lot of sense. So the the so the 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 sort of advice from you, actually not even the advice, but just an example that works from 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 talking to you is build a great product. Don't worry about marketing. You know. Be very informal. Contact some bloggers who talk about it and let them know you're around. But otherwise, just focus on building a great product and the rest should take care of itself. Well, it's not just the product, though. You want to make sure that your website is good and that you project an image of being committed and passionate and serious about it. Um, you know, you okay. basically focus on the product for the right reasons. You, you want to build a good product because you see a problem that you want to solve and you think you have a good solution. And uh, like yesterday, uh, uh, last week's show, you guys were talking about all the different, uh, you know, 
should I just have one product or should I have four or, you know, see, see which one works. Um, my advice would be don't have a product, have a problem. Yeah. You know, have a problem that you're in love with that you're, you're, you'd be happy trying to solve it for the next 20 years of your life. If you have that, then, you know, the product is, is a small, it's, it's a way for you to help solve the problem. But if you love the problem, then you will fit in better with the community of people who have this problem, which by the way, happen to be your customers. <laughs> right. You know, so, um, some people, uh, send us ideas for products all the time. And, uh, and the question I have is, sure, you know, uh, I think that would make a good product. I just don't want to work on that for the next five, six years. So essentially, there's no, there's no faking it. You know, there's no faking it. it, it, it everything has to I be think. real. Yeah, that's what I think. Well, I mean, it's, it I makes it easier if it is. Okay, okay. But I just have to say that I don't think that that's the only path to success. Because, for, exa <laughs> for example, uh, you know, Microsoft... <laughs> I mean, I don't think they, 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 they go to board meetings and go, we've got to be really real. Let's be transparent. Let's make this thing happen. You know? Well, no, but if you think about the beginning, Bill Gates was a revolutionary. Yeah, I guess. Like, you know, IBM, big monster. Let's, you know, let's make this, let's put a computer in every home. That's a powerful idea. I mean, it's interesting because Prezo, uh, Jason, when the sort of inspiration for Prezo, you you didn't sort of think oh I have the problem that I need to use PowerPoint. On, on no, the I didn't. I mean, I came at it from a different angle. I said, all right, uh, I was just messing around with the technology. I was more like a solution looking for a problem. You know, I was like, yeah. you know, dragging and dropping, and you know, and I was playing around with the XHR component, which later became known as Ajax. And I was like, this is really cool. I could do like a whiteboard. I'm like, ah, you know, whiteboard. I could do a slide. This is PowerPoint, and. You know, and I just started messing around with it, and then I got my eyes got kind of big. I started realizing what I could do, and that was before anything. Uh, the only thing out there at the time was Gmail and Google Maps, and I just thought this would be an awesome, you know, sort of mountain to climb. You know, what a cool technology! And if I could pull this off, you know, I, I was convinced that that's where the world was going to move. And if I could pull it off and do a good enough job and do it quickly enough, that there was going to be a bidding war between Google and Yahoo and Microsoft, and I would be right in the middle and be well positioned. And it almost worked out like that, but didn't quite work out that way. So. You know, now what does that say? Is it's like was that was the wrong thing to do? Should I have just gone after some problem that I had personally that I want to solve? Um, I don't know. I think one thing I will say is what what Peldy is suggesting, and which is the same thing I think like the Thirty Seven Signals guys say and other people have said, is that it's easier to stay committed in the long term to yeah. something that's your own problem. I mean, exactly. it doesn't mean you can't find someone else's problem because there's plenty of businesses that start because you're working for a company or you're a consultant and you understand business problems that other people are having and you can solve it and businesses start that way. But if you start if you start solving a problem that you have, that means you A, you really understand it, B, you really want to solve it, and, um, and, and C, I guess you can just stick with it. And, and what Peldy's saying too is like, look, I want to make sure you have to demonstrate to your customers that you are in it for the long haul, and yeah. it's just easier to do that if it's your own problem. Right. Or, you know, if you're a technology guy and, you know, don't, you know, a lot of the problems of programmers have been solved because uh, programmers, know, you know, know how to solve programmers' problems. Uh, right. But, for instance, if you wanted to build something for architects, you know, or you saw that there was a potential there, you know, hire an architect, hire a prominent architect who's in pain and, you know, uh, give him a... a don't just hire them, you know, partner with them. And uh, that way you will, you, you will go to the problem instead of 
you know, having the problem uh, be be your problem. That's a good idea. Uh, you know, if if we uh, I'm thinking uh, of future products, and one was you know more for designers, and I, and immediately I started thinking, okay, which designer should I pitch this to, and uh, you know, make him a fifty percent partner of or, or more. So one one thing about Balsamic is just from from using it, um, a, a part that I miss is the sort of the collaboration aspect, and I I know that it's it's like a it's a plugin for. Um, for Jira, is is that your approach to the the way that people are going to work with Balsamic as a collaboration tool in the future, or do you, do you have anything else? So perhaps? that's that's the way um, I started, and the way I'm still committed to. And uh, if you use uh, mockups for Confluence and mockups for Jira, you'll see that uh, the collaboration part is uh, is uh, is wonderfully uh, it, it works really well in within that environment, and. Um, I am porting, uh, we are porting mockups to other platforms. Uh, um, we have uh, five or six uh, wiki or bug tracking software that we are uh, planning on, on porting it to. And, uh, and uh, the, the rationale there is that you don't need to build collaboration features if the platform uh, has it and provides it for you. I mean, um, in Confluence, for instance, whenever I added a mockup, people get an email notification of the change and then there's the history of the mockup and people can comment on the mockup and uh, anybody can edit it within the browser. So all that stuff comes for free uh, if you, you know, uh, if I plug into existing uh, 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 applications. Uh, at the same time, one thing that I did not plan on doing at the beginning, but I, we're working on now, uh, actively right now, is a standalone web-based version of mockups um you know hosted uh, hosted saas uh, offering and that's because a lot of customers um have asked me They're asking uh, for it. have asked uh, have asked us to do it and um, i know i'm one of them <laughs> yeah well it's coming it's coming we're we're very close to beta but actually from from the from the the number of uh, uh let's say feature requests that i've been sending you away and the discussions we've been having about it i get the sense that you're you're quite a purist about the software and about the the roots of the software um, so, for example, I'm 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 maybe asking for features which are going to take it more more in an Adobe Photoshop direction, and your your response is was well, has been to date that you don't want it to turn into Photoshop. What's your thoughts on that? That's correct. That's correct. I uh, the 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 tool should be uh, a very fast and painless way to uh, get your ideas on paper and get feedback on them, and that's it. So a lot of a lot of people. Um, asked you for the feature which you have implemented, which is it basically allows you to link between pages and have the preview mode. So did, did you, were you very comfortable in implementing that, even though that wasn't what it was for? No, absolutely not. Uh, in fact, I procrastinated for months um, uh, on the feature, and when I did release it, it was not ready. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't good enough. And uh, I think it's a, it's a reflection of the fact that uh, I didn't really want to have that feature um, at the beginning, um, I realize it's a it's a very powerful and important feature, but it does change the nature of the app in yeah. a way that I don't fully understand myself, and that's why there's been so many bugs on it. Uh, it's I interesting because I've just now. I've just created a um, basically a two hundred uh, a website mockup that is a 200, 200 screens linked together, and you know right. I mean it's been working perfectly finally for me. But um, no, it's fine. It's fine now. I fixed everything uh, as it came up, but. Um, you know, for instance, the fact that you will create 200 screens for a website using mockups—that seems to me like wow. 
uh, <laughs> I did not expect that. That's that's a lot. Um, but you know, you just have to follow what people are are doing with your tool uh, to a certain extent. I will not compromise on the ease of use because it's it's the uh, it's what I think I, I uh, compete on. Uh, usability is uh, um, I think is one of those competitive factors that uh, I can I can I can win on. Yeah. Um, and so you know, anytime somebody asks me for a feature uh, that requires a new button or a new text field to add, that's where I always say, no, 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 hold on, let's try to, you know, achieve uh, solve the problem in a way that is invisible to the user, so that it's easier to use. And yeah, one thing I want to ask you about that is, you know, it's it's interesting because um, the thirty seven signals guys again, I guess we keep bringing them up, but they make a lot of good points, I guess, in the end. But they're always saying the power of no, right? I mean, it's like you're going to have a million requests. To, to do different things, but it's the power of no that kind of keeps your your product sort of. Yeah, well, they're kind of aggressive about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with the spirit, but not the way they do it. They're, you, you know, you can say, "I'll think about it." You don't have to be a <laughs> jerk. They know you're an idiot. You know, <laughs> right? right. Uh, my technique, if there's something that I keep hearing over and over, and I think it, you know, I realize it's important to a lot of people. Uh, my technique to procrastinate is to uh, write something on Get Satisfaction that says, "Hey, why don't we design it together?" <laughs> right. And, you know, I put up a couple. Yeah, of the, li- the linking the linking post is is a perfect example where there's you know like a hundred responses of people basically begging you to make it. That was me buying five months, uh, saying, "Oh yeah, we're working on it. Why don't you give us your feedback?" And, you know, I, in idea. the end, we had great feedback. We had, I had 100 posts to read in the end, and, uh, <laughs> and the feature was definitely a lot better because of it. Um, what is it? So I'm, I'm not, I'm not uh, it wasn't just to procrastinate. It was really that I wanted to hear as much, as much feedback as possible about this feature because, you know, I didn't fully have it digested myself yet. Well, it's interesting because if that one feature hadn't been made, my life would be so much harder because what I would have to do is output all of the all of the mock-ups and then link them know, together know, in HTML. I know, and I understand it's very important, and, uh, you know, I released it, didn't I? You did. Well <laughs> done, well done. All right, I'll yeah, stop. give the guy a break, I'll Justin. stop fucking you about it now. <laughs> but no, but you know, why, you know why the other reason why I waited so long is because it opens up a can of worms. Now, the most requested feature is, well, how do I export all the linked mock-ups as a viewer, as yeah. a free viewer that people can, uh, you know, use and then click to the product? Well, yeah, of course you need a viewer. Just now, uh, you know, that's uh, and then you need, you know, there's all this stuff that you need once you have linking, and so that's why I hesitated so long because um, I needed to. Yeah, well, I also had a lot of other stuff that I wanted to be solid before I moved on to, you know, to make it add in this dimension to the app. So, Jason, I think this is a great approach. We'll we'll invite uh, respected entrepreneurs on the show, and then we'll beat them up. Yeah, we'll just right. That's great. That's good. Great, great way to treat our guests there, Justin. Just no, it's marks. fine. I'm enjoying this guy. <laughs> hey, well, I would ask you a couple questions about things that I think um, uh, some people would would be curious to know and, and might not know as much about. And um, but one, why was my one point though? You know, I just I read this interesting article called it was called In Pursuit of Elegance, and uh, I think there's a book about it called In Pursuit of Elegance: Why the Best Ideas Have Something Missing. And they're talking about how essentially elegance is a subtractive process. So if you look at the iPod or you know a lot of apple products they pull out a lot of features so in order to keep things elegant simple easy to use 
you know, you really have to resist the sort of featureitis. And it sounds Absolutely. like that's really what you're trying to do is make, make keep balsamic elegant and not just some bloated, you know, you know, list of features. Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it's very, very hard to make something simple. Yeah. So I had a bunch of features. I had themes. I had like an OS 10 and a Windows theme when I was in beta and then I killed them because it just diluted the focus of the app. Uh, that's, you know. that's really, that's really good uh, point, right? So yeah. Um, limit the features down and that just becomes simpler. Or for instance, uh, an example of, a, of, a two ways to do it. Um, I, uh, lorem ipsum, right? People want to add lorem ipsum to, uh, to their mockups sometimes. It's, yeah. it's common. Um, you know, it's that gibberish Latin text, uh, that, you know, it's filler. And so when I started, I had you, when you went into edit mode, you saw this little slider under the text area and you could slide it and it would put, you know, four to 400 lorem ipsum words in the text area for you. Right. It, it was, but then, you know, that you don't need that all the time. You don't need to see them all the time. So, um, so I killed it. But then a few months later, um, I thought of a way to get the features back in an invisible way. And so now for now the way you, you add lorem ipsum is you, you open a paragraph control and you start editing it and you type lorem. And I realized that you type lorem. And so I fill in the rest for you. Uh, so it's not I just was, a matter of not having features. It's about if if you do have some features, it's just coming up a way to integrate them so they don't, you know, as you to say, make them invisible. I wish make I'd have known about that before I made 200 screens that have lorem ipsum in them. Well, if you try to <laughs> try to type lorem, it should just do it automatically. Well, no, because I normally go to the lorem ipsum generator online and just copy and paste it. Ah, there you go. See, that's the risk. You know, you make an <laughs> a feature too invisible, people might not find it, but. <laughs> but when they well, do, at least, by accident, they Twitter about it as like magic. Right. Well, at least it keeps Justin busy, right? You're, you're making a living doing your or Lorem Epson. Yeah, exactly. Thing. <laughs> okay. Well, so let me ask you a couple of questions. I just I'd like you to just um uh, give a little bit of a, of a description of a couple of tools that you use. And you guys are talking about get satisfaction. I know I'm sure there are some people who are listening to this podcast who aren't real who, who aren't real clear on what get satisfaction is. What is it, and how are you how are you making use of it? So get satisfaction is like you can think of them as the evolution of uh, forums, online forums for uh, a product or a company. Um, what I really like about it is that anybody in the world can go to get satisfaction and ask a question about any company, whether, uh, you know, any company at all, ask a question or report a problem or uh, sing the praises or share an idea about some feature for any company. And then the company can decide, can choose to join the conversation. And so it's very egalitarian um, in, in the way, you know, it puts the company and the um, customers or, you know, uh, users on the same exact level. Uh, and I really, really like that because um, I want, you know, I feel like, yes, I'm, I'm selling a tool to solve this problem, but I, you know, I'm, this is just my way to help the world solve this problem. I, I, I'm a player in this community. I'm not, you know, I'm not talking down to you. In fact, most people, a lot of people have better ideas than I do about how to, be, how to solve the problem. And that's why I, I use get satisfaction to uh, design new features all the time. Now, is um, user voice kind of like that? User voice is similar. Uh, I don't know which one came first. They are, yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty similar. Uh, you, they both have concepts of voting, et cetera, et cetera. They have some differences. I, um, 
I I discovered Guestless Faction and and uh, started using it uh, before I knew about user voice, and I've been really happy with it. So I, I haven't investigated user voice is much, but I know that a lot of people use it. Uh, Guestless Faction is free. It was free when I started. It was completely free, and then they added uh, it's freemium. They added some um, some uh, tools like they got they call them gardening tools, where if somebody posts a problem but it's really an idea, now I can go in and change the type. Of, of the topic, or I can uh, redirect it to another topic. So in this scenario, were you, were you happy to upgrade? Absolutely. Uh, it's $49 a month, which at the time when I upgraded was the most expensive thing that I had uh, recurring. Mm -hmm. But now it seems like uh, uh, incredibly affordable. Uh, so yeah, I've been, a, I've been a really, really happy paying customer, and I'm glad I'm paying them so that I know that they're staying business. <laughs> so the, free, the freemium model worked for you then as a, as a consumer for, in terms of get satisfaction, right? I mean, Yeah, I, it did, but you know what? Actually, one thing that I'm not very happy about is uh, the, the main reason why I started paying was that um, if you do pay, there's no ads on your forums pages. Okay, I see. The free version has ads, and that just seems so unprofessional for me to offer ads to people who are expressing issues with my with my tool. I, 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 the, the number one reason I, I decided to upgrade was to get rid of the ads. So no matter how many features they added to, uh, to, me, to the premium versions, it was just the getting rid of ads that sold me. Well, I, I was just going to say that uh, the, 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 so the ads serve the same purpose as sort of your you know, dialogue box popping up. I mean, it's just an annoyance, though. Yeah. Eventually, which if you're really using, eventually you're just gonna forget yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. I, I can't put this on here anymore. Exactly. So it's good that they made you a little unhappy. They made you happy, but then they made you a little unhappy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, I decided to pay. I could have looked for user voice. I could have looked for another alternative. It was a risk that they took. Mm -hmm. But then there would have been the issue of like exporting the data and the history. Well, no, I wasn't so worried about that. It was more, more that I, you know, why I paid for them because uh, I like what they stand for. They're good people. Yeah. They're transparent, and they, uh, they, they have this uh, company customer pact that they. Uh, I don't know if they made it up or they, they heavily advertise it, yeah. uh, which is a document that says, you know, the company is going to be respectful and the customer is going to be respectful. You know, we agree to do that. So, you know. Uh, the the people behind the, the 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 tool are just as important to me as the features themselves because the features are you know sooner or later all these for every problem there's going to be a few solutions all with pretty much the same features so you know i i always say that i think that the two things that um, will matter in the end are user experience you know usability how easy it is to use and to find things on your website and to um, you know all in a very broad sense, user experience. And the other one is customer support. Those are two things that are really hard to do well. And uh, that's what I'm uh, hoping uh, to win on. Well, it, it, okay, so another, that's, that's interesting. I, I just think it's, it's important to sort of talk about some of these, these uh, tools or technologies or whatever that, it, it sort of explain them to the users because not everybody is aware of all of these tools. And in fact, I had a friend of mine who I was uh, talking to and he mentioned about, you know, we, we went into a discussion, I think in episode one or two about divs and spans and he's like a Java developer, not a web developer. He's like, I don't even know what you guys are talking about. <laughs> so I, I guess sometimes it's probably not, it's probably helpful if we kind of step, step out and say, okay, this is, this mm -hmm. is sort of a context for what we're talking about. And, and, and sort of along the same lines is, you know, could you talk, could, talk to us a little bit about like your platform in Adobe Air and, and what you built Bosomic in? Okay. Well, um, 
it's a Flex application. The, the editor is the Flex application. Um, Flex is a technology by Adobe that is, uh, it's, a, it's an SDK. It's basically a compiler and a debugger, et cetera. And uh, it is also a, um, a set of components, uh, UI components like scroll bars and text areas and buttons, et cetera. Uh, it's a, and uh, a lot of, it's basically like MFC or uh, I don't know, there's a million frameworks. It's a framework for uh, developing um, rich internet applications. Uh, and uh, Flex Builder, now called Flash Builder, is the ID, and it is a um, Eclipse-based uh, uh, ID, and it's very nice. It's got you know, it's very mature. If you uh, if you think Flash is still just for animation, uh, you know, you're stuck in the '90s. Uh, it, it is a, a real development environment. It's very productive. You can throw things together very quickly, especially. Uh, Highly visual things like my text editor, my uh, image editor. So within within Eclipse, can you actually see the Flash, the SWFs playing then? Uh, no, but uh, it it launches the browser for you when you when you want to demo when you want to debug it or, or see it. Okay. Uh, if you do build, it just launches the browser. Or if you're developing an Air application, uh, it launches uh, the runtime. So a, a, a Flex to to sort of explain it to to in simple terms is essentially just the Backend is adding sort of a backend component to uh, the front end uh, Flash, so the Swift file. So when someone sees some kind of Flash movie, or, or yeah. maybe it, it actually has a little, yeah. it, it has a little more complexity. It's not just a movie, but it's, it's making. I think it's making a framework out of Flash. So it's the it's the Flash framework. Flexes. Yeah, it's not the back. It's it's all on the client still. But yeah. yeah, it's a way to generate Swift files, which are files that play in the Flash player. There's, an, there's other ways to generate Swift files. One is the Flash authoring tool. And that okay. used to be the only way to, to generate Swift but, files. But Flex itself is like as in when, when a, someone's viewing a Flex application, they're viewing an SWF that is Flex, that is the Flex framework. And then all of the SWFs within that are also other, other Flex objects. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a Flash movie in the end. Yeah. They're still called yeah. movies. It's a yeah. Flash application, yeah. but it, it contains a, a lot of code, uh, action script code that comes from the Flex framework. And now if you were building, like, let's say that you were building like a, uh, a multiplayer game or a, or a chat application that had to have mm -hmm. some kind of back component, does Flex provide a method for building that, or do you have to tie that into like Ruby or PHP or Python? So, um, so Flex, uh, the Flex framework has a lot of APIs to uh, talk to all sorts of different backends, uh, HTTP APIs, socket APIs, even uh, persistent connections uh, with, uh, with different kinds of servers. And there are some application servers that were built especially to talk to Flex. For instance, WebOrb is one of them. But um, you could have it talk to any sort of language in the, in the backend. Uh, it's just a client. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to the usual protocols. Um, can, can you deploy uh, an Air app and have it talk to, like, so, so an Air app goes out, it gets deployed, you get it gets installed on a desktop, and then somehow it communicates with the database on the desktop, and it's got more, fun you know, it's got back-end functionality on the desktop as well as front-end functionality. Is that possible? Yes, Air has uh, more, uh, the Air runtime is like, you can think of it as the Flash runtime, but uh, souped up. So in, in an Air application, you can run Flash, you know, usual uh, content that you would be able to run in the browser uh, through the Flash player, but you can also embed HTML, 
there's an HTML control for Air, or there's a database, a local database. It's like an, an so SQL database. Lite, for example. It can talk to SQL Lite. Yeah, there's SQL Lite in Air. Oh, that's cool. So Air is, Air is essentially something you install on that will allow you to run Flash applications on your desktop. As a desktop app, yeah. As a desktop app. But not just Flash. You know, you could build an application that has more capabilities than any regular Flash app will have. So, for instance, uh, when you install, you know, my, my code base is about 95% shared between all the different versions, but the Air version in that 5% has code to say, remember the position of the window and the size of the window, you know, or remember, uh, you know, the, use the native menus um, instead of uh, drawing my own menus. Well, do, do Flash, do Air apps look like the native applications? So it will look like a Windows or, a, or an OS X application? You can make, there's different uh, styles. You can make them look, uh, use the, the system Chrome or draw your own Chrome. How, how, how well does it pull that off? I mean, a lot of, uh, you, you use like a lot of frameworks like the, I don't know, Qt or whatever, WX widgets or these different cross-platforms, C++ or, you know, mm -hmm. whatever frameworks or Java frameworks, and it just never quite really pulled off that well. I mean, how, does Adobe, does Air really pull it off that well? Like, you know, if I wrote an Adobe Air app and uh, someone ran it on their OS, uh, on, on their Mac, they would say, they would think it was written in, um, you, you know, using, uh, you know, Cocoa. And I don't think so. I, th I think you know it's an Air app. Well, from from what yeah. I've seen, I think you know yeah, it's Flash. Yeah, it's true. Uh, you know it's Flash because a lot of little things like the way text is handled. Uh, yeah, yeah, text is not very is unresponsive. Historically, not very good uh, with with text. Like the 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 cursor doesn't blink when you're editing. I'm always complaining uh, about that. You know, little things like that where people people know that people will notice. Uh, that said, if you you can build Air apps that have no Flash in them. They're just HTML apps uh, that um, that run in the desktop, and so it will feel like you're in the browser uh, with a Chrome with an application Chrome around it. Uh, I see. So you could so you could essentially run like something like a Gmail app or whatever, which you make it look like your website, but they're offline and maybe writing to a local cache yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, for example, Seismic Desktop uh, that talks to FriendFeed. Um, right. That's that's uh, you know an example of an Air app. Interesting. Well, um, I'd like to ask you an, uh, another question that's a little uh, back to the whole startup world as opposed to just the technology stuff. But um, y you started this, it was just, just you, right? I mean, you didn't have any co-founders. You had your wife helping out a little bit, I think you said. Yeah, um, but, she's, but she was, I think, I think from your blog, she was just helping email out licenses. She, she, drew, she drew some of the components, I think. She drew all the components. She, you know, so, yeah, so she's the, the artist in the operation. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah. But it, So was she like... You know, spending a lot of time doing this, or was it just that she was able. No, to she's still doing part time. She's always done uh, a little bit of the time, uh, a little bit of time. Um, uh, you know, she's not getting paid or anything. She's not a, actually an official employee. You, you still but, have her on probation when she shows that she can pull it off. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we'll see. She gets paid in furniture, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. And, and well, clothes. But you know, so, again, so, it was just me for the longest time. It was me for let's see between uh, June when I launched, well, before, of course, uh, but between, uh, I hired Marco in February, so uh, first seven months, it was just me. From the moment I you guess, launched it, how long did you know you were onto something good? Like, what, what was the, the tipping point that made you think, well, well, you Justin, know what, let me this back is good? Up, let me back up one second. I, I yeah. want to follow up with that real quick. I, I, want, I, want, I want you to ask your question, because that sounds interesting, but let me just ask you. Okay, so Paul Graham really goes into this whole thing about, you know, they don't like to, you know, Paul Graham, you know, Y Combinator, when they... they oh, do yeah, that. yeah, I know. 
He's not so, into the idea of a single founder guy. Yeah, he said just he thinks it's just that way. Called it the moral weight of it is just too much, and that it, it dramatically increases the risk when you have you know only one founder versus uh, you know two or three. And I think of course if you have too if you have too many more than two or three, then you probably have too many cooks in the kitchen. But I'd just be curious what your thoughts on being sort of a, a sole founder that just had the support of your wife or helping out part-time and it's just you and you're working on this thing and you're going to launch it and you don't have anyone else there to uh, bang ideas around or help solve problems or, you know, or whatever. I mean, which, what are your, what's your thoughts on, on being a, a, a sole entrepreneur? So two things. One is uh, in general, I think I agree with uh, Paul Graham. Uh, um, a lot of the times people are uh, very specialized and, you know, if you're highly technical, you don't know about sales and marketing and anything else. Um, and so if you uh, if you're sort of in a rush, you should get somebody else to take care of all of that. Um, the That didn't apply to me because learning what it took to run a whole company was my main reason to start a company. Uh, I um I had no rush. Uh, I wanted to uh, to uh, to learn by doing. Uh, I told my, uh, you know, in my in my um, in my predictions, I didn't have any customers for the first three months because I knew I was gonna, you know, have to learn how to sell uh, or uh, all that stuff. So for me, um, it was something that I wanted to do, but I would not recommend it. Um, <laughs> For everybody, I mean, if that's what you want to do, if that's why you're doing it, sure, of course. Uh, but uh, um, it sure helps to have other people back you up uh, if you want to, you know, take a night off, for instance. <laughs> um, you know, I brought uh, I uh, I brought Balsamic up to three thousand customers uh, by myself, and that was too much. I think I should have hired somebody at two thousand, maybe. Uh, if not, if not sooner, it's it's, um, it's an astonishing story, it really is. So just to go uh, ahead and ask you a question. I, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Well, my, I guess my question is because I think a lot of people. Well, I just got so many for flipping questions. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they 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 create their product and then they they launch it, and they sort of it it doesn't really start going anywhere. And and it's like, how do you stick with it to make make it go somewhere? And at what point do you know? That it's actually going somewhere where you should really start to think, yes, this is this is becoming a success now. Well, the answer is I don't know. Um, I don't know when I realized that it, it was a success, um, and it was a success pretty much immediately. I mean, I recovered my cost in three weeks. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, um, it was it was actually too fast. Uh, the, the the one thing that, the, of course, it's it's. Uh, I don't want to sound like I'm whining, but I do complain uh, in private to my wife and now on public podcasts, I guess, that uh, <laughs> this has gone too fast. Uh, okay. I haven't really had time to digest what's been going on and um, really uh, learn the, the, the lessons that, um, that, that I've learned uh, you know, and, and reflect on them very much because I'm always chasing the next thing and then you know, sales keep going up. And so I, I feel like I've been chasing the business for a little while while I, I'd rather I don't feel like I'm in control as so much you're, as I'd like. Yeah, you're not controlling the strategy, basically, that the the um, velocity is controlling you, really. Well, I, I am. Uh, you know, lately I've definitely tried to slow things down. Um, uh, I have ho held back on some uh, features because I knew that they were 
potentially uh, going to bring a lot more customers in. For instance, the LinkedIn feature I only did because I knew I was going to hire Valerie. Uh, you know, I only released it after I figured out that, yes, I could afford to hire her and she was a good fit and everything. And so I was like, okay, you know, now that we're scaling up for with support, then I'll scale up the product, which will scale up the, uh, the, the number of customers. There's a, there's a great article by Joel Spolsky on, on uh, how you should keep the quality of your product, the amount of marketing that you do, and the people that you have on staff sort of in on the same curve uh it's um we can put it i can send you the link so we can put it in the in the notes um it was from inc magazine last year or two years ago hmm. uh and uh and that's so true i totally understand because if you're too successful and you don't have people to answer the email you know then uh, your customer support level goes down and that's unacceptable for me which basically tarnishes the reputation of the product and- yeah yeah right exactly it has to be all in sync. It has to be really coordinated. And for it, I'm only just now starting to feel like, yes, I am in the end pulling the strings and trying to understand. But you're dealing with hundreds of people, right? Yeah. It's it's very it's very strange. Um, well, see, that's the, that's also the downside of the, of of the transparent approach that you have because I know that you know once again, I've I've been asking you for to to put in features, and I, and I'm you know, and you're always available to talk to <laughs> on Skype and you know and I and that's why I thought well you know if, if you do have thousands of customers how can you cope with that there has to be a point where you have to abstract yourself from the personal interaction with all of those customers I don't know I I hope I hope I never reach that point um you know Valerie uh who now does uh, a lot of the support um she does it in a very personal way you can you can uh, Sure, you can uh, you can do things to automate. Uh, you know, you can you should do whatever you can to uh, reduce the number of support requests you get. Um, so, but but that's not saying that you should answer the support requests that you do get in a, in a quicker or you know in, in a more uh, curt or uh, unpolite way. So, hmm. if you make a product that is so good that there's no bugs, you know, you won't have a support problem. <laughs> Mm. Or, uh, right. so if you feel the pain, then you're going to solve it. Because you're like, I've answered this question 200 times in the last month. I'm solving so I don't have to answer this question again. So. Well, that yeah, is definitely exactly. what happened with myself in EasySQL. I mean, the, you know, the, I, I just took the most common bugs and just, just ironed them all out. And it's got to a point now where I only get one request a month kind of thing. Exactly. exactly. So now I'm at a point where I have two. Right now, this week, I'm realizing that uh, – we have to stop doing anything new and just fix, uh, uh, you know, a dozen or two uh, bugs. And uh, until until we're we're there, we're still going to get a lot of email about those. Right. So it's kind of like uh, it's kind of a period of sort of refactoring and uh, of of uh, saying like paying down technical debt. You know, yeah, yeah. forward, and it's like okay, we just got to get the stuff done, but not everything is perfect yeah, internally. Yeah. So you get stuff cleaned out, and then you can move forward again. Yeah. Um, and the other thing that that uh, um, experimenting with is that I think that I'm still going too fast for, for customers. This weekly, weekly release might be more than people have an appetite for. Um, it might be actually hurting me instead of, uh, instead of uh, showing, you know, I wanted to do it to show that I'm committed to it and that we're always working on it. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe two weeks might be a, a more, uh, a, well, a better, uh, a one better thing I was going to say is, I mean, it, if it was part, if the updates were part of the customer's workflow, so I mean, I know I'd be happy if it if it just sort of 
poked up, you know, poked up a little message just saying, you know, there is X number of updates. So yeah, because we're working on that feature, uh, because I don't think customers remember to go, you know, specifically to go to to go to your site to do the updates. Yeah, I know we're working on the feature. It's highly requested. The other thing is that we <laughs> want to make sure that and actually there's a guest satisfaction forum on it. And I'd love your feedback. Yeah, but anything else more to complain about there, Justin? I mean, oh, my God. I don't know. <laughs> but, I'm just um, going to shut up now. I, I'm always, I don't want I don't want the app to annoy people just with the you know with the new uh requests all the time because we do update it all the time yeah so that's true yeah you'd, you'd have to sort of do a monthly update if you were gonna have it automated right 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 so um so it sounds like you're having a great time though right i mean this whole experience it sounds like you're having a blast awesome awesome incredible incredible what a so ride you, so any doubts that you may have had of going into this it's just like this was definitely uh i mean I guess if you had not if you had not worked out, it wouldn't have been so great. But I mean, this has worked out. I mean, you're just even if it's even if you feel like it's happening a little too fast and you're not getting as much sleep and days off as you probably like. I mean, the whole thing has been. No, it's like, ins it's incredible. It's an incredible feeling. It's it's uh, success beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, and I'm serious. I mean, uh, uh, when I started, I told my wife, I think we're going to have about 150 customers after two years. And, you know, that's okay. You know, it, you know, we'll eat ramen noodles, but we'll make it. That's fine. You know, that's and then amazing. then it will take off. And it's been a year this week. Next week is going to be a year, and we are at six thousand customers. That is such wow. a great story. I mean, it's so. And this is what's great about the transparency because it's so motivating to other independent software developers. You know, just just the thought of being able to do something like this to build a business. And make it. I mean, I know that you're probably the guy who's the the lottery winner, and you know, uh, most people aren't going to be able to achieve the same level of success. But it's still, it's it's it it offers us something great to shoot for. Well, one thing that I'd like to tell people though is that um, you know, this is ten years in the making for me. I when I grad, you know, first I went to school and uh, you know I worked hard through school, and because of that, I got a, a great job at Micromedia. And because of that, I had the ability to spend seven years being a sponge and learning everything I could from all these brilliant people. And because of that, I have enough releases under my belt to know how to not take too many risks or, you know, know how, what I have learned about usability and the value of, you know, customer support, et cetera. So it's not something you can do overnight. I feel like yeah. for me, this is the culmination of my whole career. Mm. Uh, which is, you know, about 10 years. It's not, it's not something you're like, oh, I got an idea, I know how to code it, and I'm done. Well, there's a lot, the code is the easiest part. No, that's a very good point. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it's, it's like a lot of the myths that, that of the overnight success, whether it's, a, you know, in Hollywood or in music or, you know, or authors or in software. I think in the end, the the success is really just the tip of the iceberg. That's what people see after the years and years of hard work and focus and commitment. And, uh, you know, which is like, exactly what you, you know, you seem to have demonstrated is that, you know, you, you may not have had to do five different startups, but you were going through a lot of these sort of learning iterations and developing the skills within a larger company. Right. And which that, I recommend because it's a very low risk way to do it. Right. Right. Well, I have a, I have a, I have a, I have a question for you. This is be funny. So we had a, uh, we had a, a long discussion in the last uh, podcast about source control, and uh, as a single <laughs> software developer, we got really. In what is your source control uh, approach, or what was it from the start? 
approach as in uh, what did you use subversion or bit or did the, you the use my Jason's asking is do you use source control or not <laughs> because Jason doesn't okay oh my gosh Jason are you serious <laughs> oh yeah we, we had this funny talk right I with you know I we I won't I won't go through the whole thing again because people can listen to the last podcast which is kind of funny but I will I you know I've been a sole you know a sole developer and I haven't really had to work with anyone else or at least the code base was always on my machine so, oh, I, you God. know, I, I just kept procrastinating about it. I said, oh, you know, you sort of say for subversion or something. And, and I just say, well, for right now, I'm just going to create a backup directory. And I'll just take a copy of the source code and put a date on it and boom. And then I just keep doing that. <laughs> and uh, I never got around to. Uh, okay, you know, Jason, to... two reasons why I think source control would be useful to you as a sole developer. One is <laughs> uh, automated backup. The data should not live on your laptop. It should live on your laptop and somewhere else. Uh, right. So uh, and and if you live somewhere else, then when you need, when you have a new laptop, all you have to do is sync up and you're done. Um, the other reason is that you want to be able to see uh, changes and history of the changes and and uh, for every file because um, sometimes you want to know when did that bug get introduced or you know how did I fix uh, how did I fix that or another important reason for having source control is if you want to make a, a big change and halfway through you realize that you're not going to come out of it uh, how are you going to revert back to the begin to 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 before your change having source control lets you do that you know say okay let's start fresh you know there's some points where if you don't have source control you're stuck and you can't move forward and you can't move back and that's, yeah. that's terrifying. You know, I, I pretty much assumed that would be your answer. And, and just to say, you know, I mean, whenever I was, I was about to make any significant changes, I'd always make a copy of the directory. Okay. I, I don't know. If you're disciplined enough, you're basically doing source control. But, yeah. It's in a very you know, inefficient, unstructured manner. If you, if you, I, I, if you listen to the last, the, la the last podcast where we're talking about that, my reaction was just one of, you know, shock. astonishment and shock and just, you know. But then, but then Sam, who we interviewed after being shocked too, admitted that he was doing the same thing I was doing. Yeah, which is and and I know I know that a lot of people do, and I don't think that uh, you know you should be ashamed. But Jason, what what's preventing <laughs> you? I mean, uh, setting up any sort of source control tool takes you know an, an hour. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just one of those things. It's been you know when you make a to do list, and there's a thing that's been sitting on the to do list for like six months. You keep pushing it on the to do list. Well, you know, I, and I have, the, and that's one of those things. Now, I, I after our conversation uh, on the last podcast, I, I, I took a look at a couple of tools that um, Justin mentioned, which looked really easy to use and really easy to integrate. Yeah. And I didn't have to change my workflow, yeah. so I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it. So the to-do list, the to-do item has moved further up my list. I think I might okay. knock it just, just, just get Tortoise SVN installed on your machine, and then um, I've, I've got a Beanstalk account, so I'll just set you up with a repository if you want. You know, so you can just yeah. start having a play with it. And yeah. you'll you'll yeah. see it doesn't change your workflow at all, you know, other than just having to do the the one click to check it in. Yeah. No, I find and I know asking this question just ultimately just makes me look like an ass. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, not at all. I just, no, no, I just no. A lot like, of people, in terms of full transparency, in the spirit of full transparency, I just admit I, you know, that's what I do. And I was just a lot of people are the same that. way. A lot of what you know, a lot of one man shops, one man web developers. I mean, that's that's what's so great about web development, you know, is that you can actually get in. For a very low cost, you know, you, you you can start you can start proclaiming that you build websites even after just a week of uh, learning <laughs> HTML and PHP. Yeah. So, Peldy, what do you use? Do you use Subversion or Git or or what? So when I started, I used Perforce um, because that's what we used back in Macromedia and then Adobe, and that's what I knew. And it's really good, and it's free for uh, up to two committers, um, which is nice. 
And mm -hmm. so I used that by myself for a long time. And it's got all these sort of, it has a Eclipse client, a, a Windows client, a Mac client. Uh, it's got, you can, it's great for branching. You know, it's very professional. That's what the big guys use. And so I was very happy with that. But then when we needed three committers, uh, it's $700 a year per committer. <laughs> And wow. so I, I had to say goodbye to Perforce. Um, and so we uh, quickly took a look at Git and Subversion, and we went with Subversion because we are old school, square, old farts. Um, <laughs> yeah, because if you were really cool, you'd use Git or Mercurial. Absolutely, absolutely. But, you know. Um, I'm sick no, of we went with Git. Subversion just because there were, um, there were some uh, visual clients, and, uh, and uh, I use versions for OS X. Uh, right. which is uh, plenty nice, and it was 45 bucks, something like that. Right. Uh, you said, what but, is you know, I'm, not married, sure. I'm not married to the technology. Uh, right. Since it's, it's not that big of a deal. You lose the history, maybe, but there's exporters and importers. Is it, is it called Git or Get? Git. Git. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about this. I just, you just get, you've mentioned it oh, a few you times. Gotta, you gotta, next, next time, you've got get a Ruby guy or somebody who's a Git uh, aficionado yeah. to come on the show and tell us yeah, about it okay. we're gonna have to we're gonna have to get get into the git um because that's obviously a big a big new technology a lot of people talking about and mercurial is another option i think it's another one called like dark or something there's these distributed version control systems so that like multiple people can have a copy of their code base and then they, they kind of have kind of this cool merging and branching and all this kind of stuff that makes it easy is there's not and i think it particularly takes care of the case when you have there's not like one central server where everything is, is checked in and checked right. out. Right. I mean, that, right. that's what I understand it to be anyway. So but we'll, we'll get someone to talk about it because I think it's a cool technology that's going to become more and more of a big deal because things get more and more distributed and you have these virtual teams and you have things going on with in a lot of different directions. So, But oh, one last question I'll ask you. So in, in the vein of, uh, of talking about tools, what do you use for your bug tracking? Pivotal Tracker. Pivotal tracker. Okay, because that's not just a milestone or, or to-do list. It's an actual bug tracker, too. You can put features, chores, and bugs in it. And, and how do you uh, like it's super lightweight uh, enough for us to use. Um, I had a Jira installation. Um, I had an open Jira installation, which um, was great, but it was, a it was too much. I didn't need it because mostly it was just me. So I really, you know, a text file would have been fine. Uh, right. Pivotal is just a little more than a text file. Wait, you use uh, a text file for your bug tracking? I I, I could have if Come it was on. just me. You know, if it was just me, I could have. Right that's now, what I, do. Com I have a text file. <laughs> yeah, the combination of get satisfaction, that's where all the bugs come in. Right. Or email, they come in that way. Or Justin sending me Skype messages. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, um, other than that, but then they all end up in, in Pivotal Tracker because it's very easy to prioritize them and... Uh, so am I the only person who bugs you via Skype for feature requests? No, there's another couple of people. <laughs> there's like another couple of annoying people, but uh -oh. you're one of them. Uh, I enjoy you know, our conversations with you. Oh, thank you. So, um, you know, we're, we've, we're well over an hour at this stage. Yeah, it's probably a good time to wrap it up. I think Peldy probably has to get back to doing, uh, doing his thing. So. Yeah, I've heard knocking on the door. I've heard the cell phone ringing. I've been ignoring it all, but... Probably. I hope everybody's okay. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, it's been a lot of hey, fun. Hey, listen, uh, I really like this. Uh, if you, um, I'd like to come back. Yeah, uh, we'd love to have you back. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. that'd be great. So send me an email whenever.
Well, okay. thanks so much, Peldy. It was nice talking to you. And we will definitely stay in touch, and we'll definitely uh, have you back on again in, in the near future to see how things are going, because I think uh, people can learn a lot by uh, hearing from your experience and learning from, uh, learning from your, uh, what you have to say. My pleasure, and uh, uh, I'll be listening to the podcast on my iPod. Oh, great. Thanks. Ciao. All right, we're out. That's a wrap. Okay, I'm hanging out. All right. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Bye. Bye. Okay, how do we pronounce your full name? Peldi Guilizzoni. Uh-oh. I'll Are put you, you in charge say, of that one. Just say Peldi, it's fine. Okay, I'll say <laughs> Peldi. You and know, there's only seven Guilizzonis left in the world, and that's if that's not a you know, natural selection at work, I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs>